Hi, this is Shauna. Before we get to today's guest, I want to take a minute to learn more about you, the listener. We've put together a short survey at fueltalent.com slash podcast to gather information on who's listening and to give you a chance to make suggestions and comments about the show. I want What Fuels You to be a great resource for you and your interests, and I hope these interviews give you practical advice along with inspiration for your career and life. Help us continue to serve you better by going to fueltalent.com slash podcast. Thank you so much. Now let's start today's show. Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories, the years, and successes. Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Carol Mekarinsky. Carol is the founder and CEO of Enki, the company that helps teams with adoption of business intelligence and data tools. Previously, he co-founded Emerging Travel Group, including the brands Ratehawk and Zen Hotels, a profitable OTA with net annual revenues of over $100 million, and Quid, a leading research and analysis tool for strategy teams with revenues of over $50 million. In addition to his entrepreneurial ventures, he is an angel investor in Calm, AngelList, OpenCare, and more. Welcome, Carol. So good to see you. Likewise. Great to be here. Okay, I'm going to hit you with some rapid fire. Are you ready? Yep, let's go for okay. it. Okay. What was, I know you've done a ton of angel investing, and I'm curious, what was the very first company that you ever invested in? Oh, boy. I mean, I, um, I've taken a break from angel investing to focus on my current company. And actually, I'll give you a better answer. What's the first company I should have invested in but didn't? Because <laughs> that's uh, a great back, answer. I love that. Back, back in 2010, Garrett Camp uh, uh, is a friend of mine, and I remember there was a summit series when he literally pitched me uh, on the app, and he he was taking some angel checks from a few folks at the conference, and it was definitely not a no. It was just I was one month out from getting any liquidity, so I was like, ah. Oh, Which company? That was Uber. That was Uber. In back oh, in for 10. Uber. Oh, yeah, yeah. Geez. So, um, so, so it's you know everyone talks about their non-portfolio, or, or but. Uh, this wasn't a no, this was just a, you know, I'm only getting started in a month's time because I'm waiting for this liquidity, but I should have just, you know, taken some credit card debt or something. Well, you just never know though. I mean, that idea, right? Getting cars with strangers, that sounds, I mean, all of these ideas are always like hindsight's of course, 2020. Okay, so um, what is something that you have always wanted to try, but you haven't yet? I ask myself that question very frequently. <laughs> so there's... Um, the, there isn't much on the list, but there was something that came up recently. There was, um, uh, what was it? That's right. I, I met someone recently who actually played lacrosse for college. And lacrosse is one of the few sports I've not played. And he's uh, uh, actually trying to get into the Olympics lacrosse. I'm like, I need to finally try this. And it's a funky sport. I mean, basically you're like hitting each other with sticks and throwing balls. It's it's a new one for me, but it is very fun and fast. And you'd pick it up because you're an athlete, so you'd be good. Um, are you an introvert or an extrovert? Um, very much 50-50. I, mean, I don't know how many people say that. Maybe it's cliche, but um, you know, the, the way I be, be, best describe it is I'm a social introvert. So I am um, love being in small groups. I'm extroverted in small groups. 
and I'm extrovert in general among people that I already familiar with. But large groups of strangers where there hasn't been a connection made, I was like, oh, this is, this is not my thing. Yeah, it can definitely be challenging. Are you into music? I am into music. I'm a, if uh, music is, uh, you know, if I was forced to not work on uh, companies and, and, and tech and building stuff, uh, it, it would definitely be music and relates to music somehow. So I, I grew up playing the piano quite a lot. I played pretty much every day um, on the piano from 10 until 18 or so. So, uh, and my family is very musical. My, my sister, one of my sisters is an opera singer. And then more recently in the last five or six years, I've gotten into electronic music. So, but specifically combining, uh, I love combining melodies, uh, in particular kind of classical music melodies with things like uh, Afro House, actually. So like that's what you're listening to or you're creating music? Both, but but wow. uh, but uh, specifically creating combination of piano with with Afro House. Oh, you have to send it to me. I want to hear it. Is it on SoundCloud? Um, it's it is on my very private um, <laughs> laptop, which will be unleashed onto unwilling audiences. Uh, okay. Definitely. <laughs> I, I'd be. I'm a willing audience. And so, what was your best concert that you've been to? Best concert. Uh, very few people might have heard of this DJ called Ein Musik. So it's a Berlin DJ um, that uh, I went to probably, this is just before the start of COVID. So that was kind of my, my really first eye-opening experience in terms of, let's put it this way, the com- how technology and progressive music can be combined in really interesting ways. So that, that, that's, that's recent. And then I think going back back when I was a kid and probably a big reason I got into classical music was I'm playing the piano was I went to a concert when I was nine. It was a pianist called Freddie Kempf. Yeah. So if you could have any superpower, which one would you choose? (laughs) I'll go slightly on a tangent here, which is when, uh, whenever I do a transatlantic flight, which probably happens um, once or twice a month, everyone, uh, everyone says, Oh, you fly a lot. It was like, actually, I really enjoy the fact that, I am uh, offline for that length of time. And I'm actually secretly annoyed that Wi-Fi is getting better on planes. <laughs> I just want to switch off from the world and just be an introvert for these eight to 10 hours. And you know, I just get a lot of work stuff done that's kind of really completely not urgent, but just important and thinking long-term. So I guess superpower is I wish I could just freeze time for a certain number, number of hours where nothing can get done and I can just <laughs> focus on stuff. Yeah. Oh, that would be amazing. Um, are there words, I guess, maybe pick three that would describe your leadership style? Bias to action, three words, there you go. Is there an entrepreneur that you admire? Who do you admire the most? Growing up in England, uh, at the time when I was thinking of uh, building companies, Richard Branson was a name. And so I, I read all his books and he was definitely an inspirational figure just in terms of, well, I talked about leadership as being biased to action, like about his yeah. bias to action and just not being boring in uh, yeah you know. well he's pure magic right and he's incredible yeah. so yeah so you start talking about growing up in the uk i know you were born in russia how did your family end up in the uk yeah i was born in moscow and my my parents met at university both were scientists my dad was a physical chemist and uh my, my mom was a mathematician 
I think uh, pretty much what happened was in the late 80s, my dad, for him, it was pretty clear what was going to happen going forward as the Soviet Union was collapsing. And um, the, that uh, you know, the place to be in terms of opportunities and better quality of life, to be honest, was in the Western world. So, yeah, I think in the late 80s, uh, I was four years old. Uh, he, he applied for uh, a bunch of jobs in various cities around the world. Uh, we nearly moved to Australia, ended up moving, bizarrely out of context, but um, to Northern Ireland for, for a year. So my, my dad got a job at DuPont, and one of the, I think their biggest research center was in um, Northern Ireland. And uh, so I actually learned my English when I was five years old. But we, we were there for only a year. And um, then uh, it took a year for my dad to want to become an entrepreneur himself. And so we actually moved to, to England because he wants to set up his business there. And, um, uh, but between Ireland and, and England, we, we actually lived for a year in Malta while we were waiting for our paperwork to be yeah. able to move to the UK. So are you, are you, you have siblings or are you um, an only child? I'm, I'm one of five. Oh, wow. Yeah. Where um, are you in the birth order? I'm number two. Number two. Yeah. The, the, the eldest is my half brother. So um, we have the same, we have the same dad, but uh, so him and I moved, uh, you know, we were in tow as uh, my parents left um, the collapsing Soviet Union. And uh, uh, then the, uh, the other three um, were born eight, 11 and 11 years later. So, you know, once my parents settled down and, you know, had essentially enough money to, you know, be not in survival mode, um, that's when the next phase of the family started. The next phase of the family. And I guess, was it clear to you, um, I guess w- when you're in survival mode, it might not be clear the values as far as um, business and the relationship with um, money and capitalism and like how you kind of survive and make money, like, what was your relationship with um, money like and with business as a kid? And who were you looking up to? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting because I was, um, if I think about values instilled um, by parents, I, I, th- I think it's not, it's not a coincidence that just so many entrepreneurs are immigrants, right? Because they, they, they have kind of this value. I'd call it, you know, the way I'd say it is that adaptation is not a one-off thing that you experience, but it's a continuous process, right? And so as, you know, in, in you know, from the age of four to 10, I was exposed to this continuous adaptation, both, you know, from my parents and as they were kind of leading by example, you know, because that they wanted a kind of better future and myself, right? Because I had to adapt to new schools, new languages, completely new culture. And so kind of th- this, value of adaptation being a continuous process. I, you know, I, th- I think that's instilled in a lot of immigrants. Specifically to money, um, related to that, you know, my, my, my dad later built a successful business, but you know, it took time and it wasn't you know, until I was already older. And so you know, when, when we moved to, to the UK, it was very much trying to, trying to survive um, in setting up a business, you know, paycheck to paycheck. And as part of that, I just never really assumed, even though my, my parents did become wealthier later, that, you know, there is this, uh, I don't know, endless pot of money. So I never really asked for money kind of proactively. So I just mm-hmm. assumed I just have to figure it out myself. 
Yeah. And what were you into? Like in middle school, high school, did you have a sense of what you'd want to be when you thought about adulting? So at school, I remember, I remember finding, I remember finding school quite boring in the sense of, uh, it, you know, it was just kind of a competition. And uh, luckily, you, you know, I was kind of good in, in, in the subjects that could be objectively tested, you know, you know the sciences, basically. And, um, and uh, so I actually found the subjective subjects most interesting. So I actually got into art quite early. I was really into art because it was subjective and there were no good answers. And, but given I wanted to build stuff, I, like the, the first profession I remember thinking about was being an architect. Mm. That was the first thing I remember. Yeah. Yeah. And so you went to Oxford, obviously an incredible school. Um, I'm assuming that you did pretty well in high school in order to attend there. Um, what was your experience like at Oxford? Oxford was great. I mean, I'm um, slightly controversial maybe, but I think with hindsight, I would have, I mean, Ox, don't get me wrong, Oxford is probably, you know, one of, if not the, the top college brands in the world. I had an amazing experience. My best friends all went to Oxford, built an amazing network, and it gave me a lot of the opportunities that I had. So, you know, maybe take this with a grain of salt, but with hindsight, I probably would have, gone to the US for college, uh, even if it wasn't a top, top, top brand school, just purely just thinking about what I'm doing now and, and kind of how uh, intertwined everything I'm doing is with the US. Um, and I, I'm a big fan, though, of um, certainly at, at this time, kids going, kids having somewhat of a cocoon and um, being protected somewhat until about 13 or 14, which I think the UK is the best in the world for. But after that, I, th I think if, if you want to, if you want to be building things, um, get involved with business, so that, yeah, you know, probably getting um, exposed to the US was a good thing. So, so, I mean, at Oxford, I, I realized after two months that I wasn't good enough to be a mathematician, thank God. Um, mm -hmm. you know, before, before I started, I thought, okay, maybe I, you know, I, I was, a lot of the books I was reading were, kind of more, um, you know, abstract math books, partially because they helped me get into uh, Oxford, but also just because I just found them just interesting from a philosophical point of view and potentially as something I'd want to do professionally. But then two months in, I realized, okay, this is, <laughs> I'm not going to be, you know, one of the top five people in the world uh, who are working on this. So pretty quickly, thank God, realized, okay, what else, <laughs> what else could I be, right? Um, started to explore uh, startups and building things. And that's kind of how I got involved with uh, the entrepreneurship club at Oxford, which, which I helped start. Um, yeah. Tell me more about the entrepreneurship club that you started. Yeah. So, I mean, to be honest, it was my way of uh, just learning, to be honest. Right. So I, um, I, I wanted to get involved with, with, with startups. I reached out. I didn't know where to start. There weren't really any resources online back then. Um, unlike now, um, and so I just reached out to a bunch of people that were, that were in that, in that network or like physically close to me in Oxford and London, um, who might be able to help. And back then there wasn't really a startup scene, uh, in, in Europe or the UK at all. And so no one really <laughs> knew what they were doing either. Right. And so, um, but I realized there were a lot of people in my boat as in they were interested. And so initially just started something as a kind of Friday night. So I set up just a drinking uh, event with what initially was, I think, 15 people. 
who who I talked to and found after you know a few weeks who were also interested in sonas but didn't, didn't know what they were doing. And um, from there we thought, oh, how can we actually do something more than just you know talk about stuff? And so we had this idea of um, uh, setting something up a bit more formal, which we ended up registering as a um, as a formal charity and, and club um, as part of the university. And um, um, yeah, and through that process ended up, uh, uh, well, it ended up becoming the second biggest um, society after the Oxford Union um, in the, uh, in the university. But um, more, more practically, um, you know, we, we basically hosted events. Um, yes, we had speakers. Um, uh, so in particular, for example, Max Lefchen was one of our speakers and, and he, he was the way I got my first job in San Francisco at Slide. Um, but uh, but the, the kind of more practical use was we actually set up workshops to start companies, right? So we, literally in, in year one, we would have 40 people in a circle and uh, who are kind of curious about something like maybe only five uh, of us had any idea, you know, ideas that the rest of the group thought had any kind of, um, that were excited about in any way. And we literally started five companies that day. You know. That's incredible. It's like the original startup weekend, or the original like uh, like the labs, like the the VC labs that are spinning out companies now. Yeah, that's that's, right. that's super cool. So tell me, so this company Slide, what what did that company do? And when you say you met him, and then so you went from London to San Francisco. That's right. I did I did, did three years at Oxford, but literally five days after my last exam, I flew over to San Francisco, and actually initially started as an internship. So I actually had a job lined up. I think it was a, um, a my, my, my first job, my first proper full-time job was supposed to be a, a startup uh, private equity fund, which I was, you know, um, excited about. But, and, and so Slide was, uh, Slide was actually just an internship, but I thought, hey, uh, I've got nothing to lose. I'll explore San Francisco, which I'd never been to before. Um, I'll, um, this will be a you know, great experience, but I, I definitely was planning to come back after two months. Mm-hmm. And um, so Slide was Zynga's main competitor. So we, we were one of the biggest uh, Facebook app making companies. But before okay. we, we started making Facebook apps, we, we had a slideshow product. And uh, while I was there during my internship, we basically found product market fit and started growing like crazy. And so, um, and also while I was there, I mean, we, we had an, absolute stellar team so it was some of the top folks from paypal and ebay and and yahoo who were part of the founding team and so i was there for a couple months and it was you know quite jarring early on just getting used to the culture but it was just um you know an incredible uh, exposure to um well to, to the way the valley worked which is like completely different to anything i had experienced before yeah. in what was happening in europe back then and so I was like, ah, oh, I have to stay. <laughs> just well, yeah, just the pace. It it got a little, you got a little taste of it, and then you had to stay. Well, and then just like reading your background, and then it's like founder, founder, founder. And then you got the serious bug of um, entrepreneurship and founded a bunch of companies. Um, tell me about that journey of being an entrepreneur for the next, I guess, I mean, from forever since two thousand seven. You've you've been a founder. For me, it was quite a kind of more of a career progression so so my my, my first company that um i was co-founder of uh was initially called unoodle but it got it rebranded to um to quid uh, a company called quid which merged with uh netbase uh, a couple of years ago it's uh, it's doing quite well but i was before we had any investment uh 
you know, I, I think I had uh, 20% for, of all the shares, right? And so I was an equal partner with my, with my co-founder uh, in that company, who's actually still at the company. Um, wow. so, so 15 years on. In big part, I mean, I helped him get it off the ground. You know, we spent countless weekends before we, we raised some money and shifted to full-time, but we spent count, countless weekends in Washington Park in North Beach, just writing, you know, building specs and, you know. Mm-hmm. What did Unoodle do? What was the business, what was the business idea for Unoodle? So, so, so we raised money. The first idea was uh, completely different to what um, Quid does. When, when Unoodle uh, rebranded to Quid, we actually spun out Unoodle as a separate brand. So that brand still exists. And now they do uh, business plan competitions. But the initial idea was very, very different, which was we, we actually started building a social network for uh, entrepreneurs at universities. So think of it like an angel list, but for university ecosystems. And the, like, there was no real business model apart from, hey, if we manage to engage the top university entrepreneurs, you know, the future PayPals and YouTubes and Googles and Yahoo's of the world, which got started in, in universities, they're going to be on this network and we're going to figure out how to get a piece of them, right? So that, that was the initial idea is, is just a kind of really compelling um, online tool. And, and that, that idea stemmed from actually from the entrepreneurship club, right? Because the, the, the guy who I started um, Unoodle, which became Quid with, uh, his name is Bob Goodson. Um, he, he was uh, um, kind of involved in starting the uh, entrepreneurship club at Oxford with me. And so um, kind of the idea stemmed from that because we, we just saw a lot of the, a lot of student entrepreneurs that we were helping, but, but uh, we didn't have any software to really, um, we didn't have any software to really allow them to, to interact with each other and do what they did with our help, which is kind of start companies in a more effective way, right? So, th- so that, that was the initial idea, but it kind of evolved very quickly. <laughs> yeah, interesting. So going through that as, your, as a first-time founder, it's, it's obviously a success. How come you ended up leaving and your founder stayed? Well, well, company hasn't exited yet, so it's it's doing very well. Um, it was r- raised kind of over a hundred million dollars, um, com- uh, merged with, with NetBase, which is very very successful. So mm. it was after four years, it felt like it was time to start what I felt like was my own company, right? So, mm. so I actually moved on after four years, and um, it was very good terms with my, with my co-founder. It just felt the right timing to to start. What ended up being my my previous company, which which I worked on full time, which is a hotel booking company. So um, that was when I moved uh, from Quid and uh, started my next company. So there I was a 50-50 co-founder, but I wasn't the CEO, right? And so uh, and it, at Enki now um, I'm the CEO of the company. It's definitely felt like a progression. What what it, what would you say? Um... Carol is your kind of ninja skill. Like when you're not the CEO, cause your titles have been a little bit more like co-founder president, but like, are you the, an operator? Are you more of a marketing guy, sales guy? Are you more of an engineering? Like what's your kind of special sauce as a leader? I'm, I'm on the product side. So I'm, I'm very much about, and it may, maybe my, my past with, with music and, you know, remember I told you that story about kind of Freddie Camp from creating this mm-hmm. magic experience and being absolutely mind blown by it. Um, so I just, you know, w- w- when I'm doing anything, I'm like, how can I recreate that? You know, how can I recreate that for everyone I'm serving? Which, like, so yeah, if I had to put it in, in kind of one phrase, it would be 
just on the product side, you know, I just love thinking like, okay, those people are going to be experiencing what I'm building right now. How can I make it as, as mind blowing as possible? And so I'm just kind of um, naturally drawn to the product side and because of my kind of art um, side, which, you know, from my childhood, I, I just love being involved in kind of the visual elements of that as well. Yeah. And what happened with the travel company? The travel company is also still growing. It's that, that was one hell of a story for lots of reasons. One was uh, because it started as a, I actually um, moved back for five years to, to Moscow. And the initial idea was uh, a booking.com for the Russian speaking world. We had to kind of go all out in terms of focusing on the international market. And uh, we kind of, we, we switched to B2B. Um, And um, so that, that transition was, um pretty crazy uh also involved china like we were um one interesting story is that we you know we were supposed to raise um uh, a, a huge round from uh around the same time from ctrip which is uh, china's biggest travel agent and that literally fell apart on the last you know they literally got cold feet on signing and wiring day and you know we had no money somehow we miraculously survived and raised four million dollars in a weekend and had to get through that and then you know, rebuilt the company and then, and then COVID happened and our revenues went down by 96%. And again, somehow um, survived. Again, the company is doing very, very well. And, uh, you know, in, in terms of, uh, you know, it hopefully will be um, an IPO on the card soon. What does the company do now? I know you said it started to be like the booking for Russians, um, but what is it? What does it do now? So, so it has a it has a few brands, right? The, the valuable technology that it built was a white label meta search that basically found um, the best rates for hotels in on random local sites, and then would uh, basically show the best prices. And in, in most cases, the prices are better than on Booking.com, right? So that was the initial technology we built. It's like you know, you, there are tons of sites like cheap hotels in barcelona.com right which are uh, you know n- n- let's put it this way not the most beautiful websites right and so they're tough to navigate and they don't know how to kind of acquire customers very effectively but they have amazing rates because they just talk to the hotels directly right um most of the time better than booking.com and so we basically built technology to combine uh, all of those uh, we have the most kind of partners and kind of the best rates so that initially we um just focused on the consumer market uh initially like i said in the russian speaking world um booking.com is a very very tough competitor so we switched more of our focus to b2b the consumer side is 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 still a pretty good business but um the the b2b side which is basically selling to travel agents and corporates Mm. uh is much more effective right so the kind of the best business right now is part of that kind of group of of companies is called ratehawk ratehawk.com and it's it's essentially a um a product with the same technology that we sell to travel agents. So it's, mm. it's, it's the top product for travel agents to, to sell to their customers, uh, to use when, when selling trips to their customers. Oh, I'm sure it's probably, like you said, just on fire now, but incredible that you survived through the pandemic. What a crazy industry to be in. So you've done, <laughs> it looks like you've done a ton of investing. Um, I mean, I counted, I was like 15 plus uh investments on as an angel investor i know you've kind of slowed that down while you're building enki um how has it been for you as an operator um i guess you've, you've seen now both sides you've been an investor what what lens do you look at when you're thinking about which companies to invest in are you looking at um 
the total addressable market, the industry? Are you doing the data analysis on the numbers? Are you just looking at the leadership team? What are you yeah. looking at? And then also when you're going to raise, or maybe you haven't had to raise, how do you um, pitch differently because you're used to being on the other side? Being an angel investor is com completely different to being what I call a professional institutional investor, right? So someone who is an investor at a VC um, firm is, uh, you know, just the process they go through and is just completely different to, to an individual investor, right? And so I've got no experience of being a professional institutional investor. Yeah, to answer your question, what, what I mean, for me, actually, I think it's probably worth mentioning how I got started with angel investment. Uh, I mentioned how I did not invest to Uber, which was kind of a month before I got liquidity. But I, I don't think it was a coincidence that I started investing when I left the Valley because my main motivation was to actually learn and stay in touch with the Valley because I just left the Valley, right? And so my main motivator was, to be honest, um, you know, be able to read all the updates <laughs> that, are, that are sent, um, uh, were sent from all my uh, uh, investments and, and being cl close touch with the best practices in the Valley, um, you know, because I, I, I wanted to stay exposed to that. Um, and I thought, okay, what's the best way of doing that? I might as well invest into my smartest friends that are building uh, things at that time. Um, and because I wanted to learn as much as possible, I want to invest into things that ideas that are kind of different to what I'd find as normal or that I'd understand. Right. Yeah. So that was the framework. It's just like smart folks in the Valley, uh, building on things that I didn't understand. <laughs> so it's, this is like completely, you know, probably terrible investment advice, but it turned out to be a pretty great framework for investing. So, um, I don't know if it was the first company, but I invested, it was one of the first investors in calm. Um, the, the meditation app, which is now turning into this full-blown kind of next generation. I love Calm. And then uh, Peak, the the travel activities um, marketplace that's uh, run by Rizwana Bashir. You know, in the case of Calm, you know, I, I invested when Calm was do nothing for two minutes dot com or whatever the website was. It was like literally do nothing for two minutes. That's awesome. Yeah, and. Um, yeah, and, and pretty much uh, everyone else who was looking at it thought, oh, this, is, this must be a joke, right? And so I thought, well, you know, as, as, as long as the founders um, are sincere and uh, about focusing on this full-time and in a way where the vision is something that can really be, uh, create something new and valuable, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be part of that. Yeah. And so did you have to raise for Enki? And if so, or did you bootstrap? Um, both, uh, but, uh, half, I'd say half of the capital that we've raised so, so, so far, I, I haven't actually announced kind of how much we've raised and, and from who exactly. Um, but, um, about half the capital has, has been my own and then the rest from, uh, relatively small checks. So kind of up to, to, you know, up to, um, uh, up to 250k from uh, individuals or institutional investors. Yeah. And what what does the company do? So, what we're doing is we're we're helping scale uh, professional mentorship. So, the, our our mission is to get um, every professional to have a mentor that, that's that's helping them fulfill their potential in their professional life. Right. You know, the reason I'm excited about this is be, is because 
the, the kind of most the highest impact uh, I've been lucky to have is was when I you know mentors of mine you know, I've had many mentors who've helped me along the way and kind of those were kind of critical inflection points in, in my career right it's tough to find the, the person who is a good fit for kind of the, the the skills that you that will move you forward in the career yeah. over the next year or two that's really really hard and so what we've done is is solve is um, you know we solve that problem which is how do you um, how do you kind of connect folks who uh, have kind of are able to willing to and uh, able to offer a specific skill set uh, as a mentor to someone for whom it will make a big difference in their career um, over the next um, uh, over the next year or two and so um, yeah we're building basically a kind of a mentorship platform we're distributing through companies we help them use their productivity tools uh, much more effectively. And the way this ties with mentorship is that we mentor employees specifically in skills that are going to help them be more productive and use their productivity tools better, right? So, so we're building this marketplace of mentors, but the companies are really, really behind this and pushing it, right? Because it helps them improve a ton of metrics around productivity, helps them um, helps them adopt their, their tools better, helps them save time, helps them automate uh, a lot of things, right? How so, many um, users do you need per company? Is it need to be a certain size company? Our company packages start at a minimum of kind of 20 people um, at a time. And, um, but, but, you know, we, um, um, any individual can kind of join the platform and kind of go through, start on one of our tracks uh, and get mentorship, uh, you know, along whatever tracks are relevant for them. Mm-hmm. And so to measure the milestones of success within the company, you're measuring it by the amount of companies that are on the platform. Well, I mean, success for us is, are we, you know, are we helping to achieve their employees' goals, right? And kind of, we, we provide that infrastructure to make sure that we identify what are the goals for each employee and they do a showcase at the end of each month to show this is how they've achieved those goals and what are the objective benefits to, to the company. So, the, so there's value to the company, right? Mm-hmm. The big problem with all these mentorship companies that are kind of focused on uh, soft skills exclusively, you know, like the, like the better ups and the coach ups of this world, uh, which, are, which are great companies and products, but there's, there isn't um, an objective uh, tied to the bottom line. Uh, you know, there is an objective to outcomes. Uh, yeah, there is, there is an objective link to okay, this is great. This clearly is a benefit for you as an employee, but you know, this is quite expensive. How do we know that this is kind of you mm-hmm. know objectively a a massive um, boost um, in terms of not just for the employee, but but for the company? Right. So, can you give me a real example? I'm thinking about it in terms of like. Like me, my company, for example. Give me an example of a customer, a problem that they had, and how Anki was able to solve it, and and how like literally logistically it works. Like they get on the platform, and then you match them up with an, a mentor. Is that like how the yeah. matching works? What algorithm you're using? What assessment yeah. tools you use? All of that. Yeah. So 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 what we focus on is what are use cases that save time and automate things, right? So the simple example of that is. I think most most companies, most professionals use Excel, and so you know, the, the kind of simplest example is we would take, for example, a um, let's say a customer success team, right, uh, as one example, and 
you know, custom success do various things in Excel to help prepare data for their customers, right? So it turns out they're wasting a ton of time manipulating um, Excel and collecting data um, uh, to prepare data that they need for their customers, right? So, so that they can provide them with useful information and to help sell them and serve them better. So very simple example is we would, you know, we would have 10 people from, you know, a large company and let's say in customer success that would be on the platform, they would be on the, in this case, Excel track. And we, we the platform automatically with the help of the mentor um, defines what is the goal in month one. Uh, and then once they finish month one, month two, and at the end of month one, there's a showcase to show, okay, this is how much time I'm saving in collecting data uh, on my customers. Therefore, this is how much time I'm saving. And these are the new things I'm able to do because of this new time. Uh, because mm -hmm. this time has been saved, right? So that's a very, very simple example. We started life in training in, in kind of business intelligence tools. So there are tons of these tools like Tableau, Looker, uh, Power BI that are absolutely great. And again, customer success teams and marketing teams and product teams can and should use them. The problem is that they're pretty hard to, to get started with, right? So what happens in, in, in especially larger companies is that you might, you might have a thousand people who can have access to Looker but only a very small number of them will actually be using them properly, right? And so another example is that, you know, we would have, let's say, a, um, um, a, a marketing team um, who, uh, you know, they're just not using Looker to their potential. And it turns out that if you use Looker for a lot of marketing examples, it saves you a ton of time. It's not just, it's not just kind of a nice to have. It saves you a ton of time because you don't need to do as much stuff uh, in Excel. That you were doing really, really slowly before, right? And so we focus on kind of the objective time savings from getting a large marketing team to use Looker instead of Excel for certain use cases. So that's another example, right? Interesting. And so who's that? When you say we, who's the person that's like working with the team? It's like some one of your mentors, an Anki mentor. Well, we have we we have an operations team. Um, well, which is basically a customer success team that mm -hmm. um, that kind of onboards companies and makes sure that the platform is set up for them. Um, and um, we, we have got kind of algorithms that automatically match kind of those, let's say there's 50 marketing people, we, we match them with, with the uh, mentors that aren't in our network uh, for them, but our kind of customer success team, you know, the, 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 they do some tweaking to make sure that everyone's matched yeah. appropriately, right? So it's like a, it's wow. like a huge loop. super cool. Well, the, the, awesome. you know, it's, it's, um, it, it, it's, it's cool because, um, Companies are already doing this right now, right? So, so it's like, and but it's it's incredibly like a lot of this stuff is difficult and manual, and there's a people component, you know. And the larger the company gets, the more of a people problem and politics uh, issue there is. Now, COVID's happened; um, everyone is re uh, remote. Now, kind of how you know solving the problem of how do you get a large marketing team or sales team or product team to use our tools that we have especially when they're joining the company, that's gone from just being difficult to you know, a crisis, right? It's really, really hard. It's like, how do you do that remotely? Um, the way you do it remotely, if you do it properly, is that you set up like proper processes and that are kind of systematic, disciplined, driven by software, reminding everyone to, to join them, uh, where every employee is matched with someone internally who's their mentor. Um, you know, this is, how, this is how Airbnb and Google do it, right? Uh, what we've in effect uh, created is built a system that allows every company to um, 
kind of get the benefits of um, you know, the three or four companies that are doing this somewhat well, which are Google, Airbnb, Amazon, and a couple of others, right? Except for we do it better because we have uh, access to a kind of larger network of mentors, right? I can't wait. I can't wait to tinker around on it and and see if we could use it because I'm thinking of all sorts of examples of ways that we could use it. How have you been intentional around? Um, and obviously, I know you started it um, about a year before the pandemic started, a little a little longer than a year, and then went into a pandemic. Like, yeah. How have you built your culture? How many employees do you have at this at this point? We started the company in a distributed first kind of way, right? I'm part of the phrase distributed first rather than remote first because I think distributed is kind of word-wise aligns with more of the fact that the team's together and not just kind of, you know, far away from each other. And, you know, there's obvious huge benefits, especially for startups of being in the same place. You know, it's the whiteboarding, it's the ideating, it's the how do you both minimize downsides of that being much harder, but also use remote or being distributed as, as an opportunity to, to maximize the benefits of that, right? Which is essentially access to a global talent pool, right? Which is the biggest thing. Um, so, um, but what was, what was the initial culture, uh, question? Uh, building the culture? How have you been intentional? Like what's your idea of a good culture and, and how do you, how have you set a culture as far as um, having it reflect your own personal values of the kind of the place that you'd wanna work? I think the way I, I think about it is like, how do you scale those family values wh- when you have a very strong f- uh, family? And, and how, how, how do you scale that in terms of the benefits of collaboration, 100% trust, um, communicating in a way that where you're fully intentional about just caring for others? Um, you know, how, how do you scale that, right? And, and in my previous company, the, the, the hotel booking company, we actually, we made a lot of mistakes, just like everyone does. But uh, one big thing is, uh, you know, one thing we saw is we, we far too quickly kind of grew past the kind of 150 to 200 person mark, which is, which is you know, th- that Dunbar number of 150, I think it's, yeah. you know, there's, there are a lot of applications um, of it. One of them is that, you know, once you get a company to that stage, a lot of things start breaking down. I think it's an inflection point of... Mm things communication wise and process wise starting to break down. And, you know, I think we grew from like 20 to 200 people in 18 months. It yeah. was, how many do yeah. you have at Anki now? So we have uh, full time. We have 15, only 15. I am trying, you know, with my hardest to grow the team as slowly and deliberately as possible. I mean, we're still relatively early in the grand scheme of things, but we do have our network yeah. of, I mean, of mentors who are very part-time. So our model of the, of the mentors is, is uh, unlike unlike the um, kind of soft skill experts that kind of Coach Hub and others hire, ours are um, uh, very part time. So they work full time at top companies in the U.S. and they they spend between one and four hours on our platform mentoring, right? And so we have a network of uh, at this point uh, f- um, three hundred mentors. Um, and so you know, obviously they're not full time the team, but you know, we see them as our as an extension of the team in some ways. So if somebody's interested, if they're listening and they want to be a mentor or they think that they need a mentor, um, I guess they could reach out to, um, to Enki for either to be a mentor. If they want a mentor, they should tell their company to go sign up <laughs> that they need the tools that Enki can provide. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if yeah, they exactly. want to be a mentor on the platform, is there a way to do that through the website? Yeah, yeah. There's a way to uh, 
sign up as a mentor as well. What's really interesting is that you know we we, we speak to a lot of our mentors frequently, and and um, they, they, I mean it, it is a paid opportunity, so we do pay our mentors. But it's you know it's it's reason number four or five in, in you know when we talk to them afterwards of you know what value they're getting or you know what's what's in it for them. The best way to to learn is to teach, right? And so by you um, uh, being forced to guide and teach others, it's it's a great forcing function um, to to just figure out where where your own gaps are as well. Yeah. Well, this is great, Carol. Thank you so much. I'm going to ask you one final question, and that is, what fuels you? Oh, it's just life itself. It's just it's just life itself, Shauna. So I. Uh, you know, my, I think this is a lesson I took from my dad where he, he's like, you know, too many people philosophize too much about what the meaning of life is. It's just, it's just life itself. And, um, and so, uh, you know, it's the reason why whatever, whatever I'm building, I want to make it as magical um, uh, of an experience as possible uh, for whoever's uh, experiencing it. And I want to have the most interesting experiences myself uh, over time. You know, we uh, haven't talked to, as much about crazy, interesting experiences, but you know, that's, um, you know, I, I think that, that, that should be a big component of uh, everyone's life. So, you know, what fuels me I is completely the, agree. the next, the next great experience, both for myself and for folks that I'm building stuff for. Thank you for listening to the what fuels you podcast. Be sure to subscribe rate and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.